0: Hello, and welcome back to Headset, the Oberlin Theatre Department's podcast.
1: Today, we're continuing our conversation with Caroline Jackson-Smith, Professor of Africana Studies and Theatre and Chair of the Theatre Department.
0: Last week, our conversation around equity, diversity, and inclusion within theatre featured a discussion of the last Oberlin Theatre Roundtable, which tackled some of these issues. Today, we'll continue to talk about EDI in a more broad sense, as Professor Jackson-Smith gives us some more insights into the workings of the Theatre Department.
1: And now back to our conversation with Professor Caroline Jackson-Smith.
0: I was hoping that you could talk about how theater is affecting the rest of society and the way that we attempt to deal with these types of dynamics of attempting to find our way towards true equality and realizing the ways that institutions have been impacting people for you know hundreds of years
2: that is a great question you know theater sometimes suffers from being elitist by its very structure and it you know theater exists on so many levels and because I come out of the black theater tradition in my classes I try to teach a very expansive notion of how we might define theater. Community ritual is theater, black church is very theatrical. We say that black culture is a performative culture because singing and storytelling and high affect and rhythm and color and movement are important in everything that happens. If we say theater starts from, let's say, Broadway, which is how some people think, we've got one set of challenges because we've got money, we've got people who are not always as interested in multiple communities, not caring how work is constructed for multiple communities. I do think even Broadway in the last 40 years have gone up and down with trying to be challenged in that way. We had a big debate in my Theater of the Millennium Dramatic Literature class about Hamilton and how it was groundbreaking it also, there's so many tricky things about it in terms of how it plays with American history, and does it really reinvent it, bring other people to the center of it, or does it miscue people about what the history really is? But it was, in fact, a revolutionary piece. and, like a number of pieces that kind of broke the mold on Broadway, they came out of smaller theaters, usually out of the New York Public Theater, where that came from, which is one of the most risk-taking theaters in New York that has a, a fairly wide reach. It's sort of one of the places that incubates a lot of work, but and that's also true for plays like For Colored Girls Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Was Enough, which came also through a small black theater into the public theater into broadway and was only the second play ever authored by a black woman to play on broadway but these are still i can still cherry pick out what these plays are so if you ask general public especially general white public what's theater they might automatically think of broadway because you see it reflected in other media Okay, after Broadway are the Lord Theaters, which are the League of Resident Theaters who use equity actors and crew people and designers. Those theaters exist in specific communities, and they have a different challenge, which is how, what communities do they want to reach where they exist. So again, you have some theaters that have pushed hard and been very daring to find various audiences and to appeal to them. I'll tell you a story because um, I was a witness to the build out of the August Wilson story. I, I happened to be working at Yale when August Wilson was an unknown playwright. One of my first relationships to that story was to find an audience for this unknown playwright doing his first play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in New Haven, Connecticut, where my job was to do town gown relations and to reach out to all the communities on the campus, make a safe space for black students and try to find the black community of New Haven among other communities. So I did that, and then wildly popular, very fast. And so a whole industry sprung up, which would try to get black people to theater. And it was through groups. It was through church groups and civic groups. And, you know, We found that black people weren't buying these expensive tickets on their own, but if you packaged a group, gave a reasonable price, you would suddenly have a new audience. All theaters kind of face this issue. Over here is the idea that in some communities, theater exists in ways that aren't recognized by kind of our formal establishment. If you think about indigenous peoples, that includes African peoples who came to the United States and then synchronized their culture with others. Uh, If you think about certain Asian cultural styles, theater functions very much out of a community ethos. So here we are in kind of our local theaters in our academic theater with the same issue. Who are we appealing to, what are we doing, can they afford it, are we telling stories that not only the communities themselves wanna hear but that other people can hear and have a new insight. I was thinking about when um, Raisin in the Sun premiered on Broadway in 1959, first black director Lloyd Richards, who later was August Wilson's director and the head of Yale Drama School and Yale Rep, first Black woman playwright to have an actual self-authored play on Broadway. If you look at the press after it, like she was getting, at the time they had telegrams, she was getting telegrams like from China, like, this is amazing. All the major publications were like, we can finally look into a Black family's experience and understand it. So there's that way that theater can function. You know, We put on a stage a story that the majority culture has not heard or cared about or witnessed But I think our real question now is who tells the stories and how do theater organizations find communities that are not coming to theater? Young people. Theater's been in a crisis for at least 10 to 20 years about the um, subscription audience disappearing, which was usually older white people who had discretionary income who could make a commitment to coming to a local professional theater. So theaters have had to tear up their whole idea of how do you even sell tickets. But I think this central point of can you get young people to the theater? Can you get black people to the theater who don't think of theater as being anything for them? Can you get queer people to come to a play and feel respected and like this story has something to do with them? And again, it really comes down to economics. So now I'll come to us at Oberlin. We have not always done a good job of reaching beyond the campus to get an audience. And I can tell you how hard we've worked and that We've had occasional successes that don't become institutionalized. So for instance, I did an Afrocentric version of The Wiz and there was so much demand for it in town. We were turning people away. And the black community came out because this was a title everyone knew, everyone loved. I don't remember if it had gone from stage to film version at that point, probably had. So here was a piece that was so resonant with a certain community that they automatically came to us if we could get the word out. Another example was Justin Emeka directed Death of a Salesman with Avery Brooks, who's one of our more high profile alums. And it was an example of the kind of work that Justin's really becoming known for, which is to take a piece of writing that was not written from a certain community or culture's point of view and to flip it. So he made a kind of an interpretation of it that was very centered in making Willy Loman's family a black story and thinking about who else would be in that world, and it's this is going into the whole controversy of colorblind casting, where you take the same old dramatic lit, you take Shakespeare, you take the Greek drama, and you just sort of put anybody in it. There's a certain advancement in that, and actors appreciate that, but it is not radicalizing what stories you're telling. So when Justin did this, we worked super hard to have a school audience. People came from Cleveland. Um, there was so much demand for this, the audiences were so mixed, and we don't have the resources to do that all the time. We don't have the ability to do school shows, which is really how you get the young people. And are we picking a play that's going to attract a wide audience? I have to say, in the years that Paul Moser had the Overland Summer Theater Festival, he made a lot of headway with local audiences in a different way. So in a class sense, the white communities around us who don't think of themselves as having any relationship to Oberlin, who have a a stereotype of Oberlin as some kind of radical otherness, and because it was free, all kinds of people were coming with their children and Paul programmed it so there was always a children-friendly show a kind of a shakespeare or classic euro show and then usually more contemporary play and he did try most summers to have the contemporary play often be from a black perspective or etc so we learned something there which is that it was possible to reach a much wider audience of our neighbors who don't ever think of coming to oberlin and the freeness made a difference and the more years he did it i mean he was up to a mailing list of thousands of people people were coming out from cleveland depending on what the show was or who was in it but this is such an essential problem for theater one of the things we're proud of at oberlin was a program started by retired professor phyllis gorfane which was a theater at grafton prison program and for i don't know maybe 15 years we took theater makers into the prison and the men then created dramatic work. And at one point we had a student whose honors capstone was helping the men create their own play out of their own stories. And that was a revelation because there were so many things they didn't feel safe telling. And one of the stories in it caused someone to be transferred to another prison. So This kind of thing like prison theater, going into schools and young people, especially young people who are very disconnected or not engaged with their educational process, this is where theater can be literally transformative. And then in terms of what we put on our formal stages, we have to keep working with this balance between budgets. I mean, theaters are struggling to survive financially and how we serve a variety of audiences
1: i mean they're especially struggling now with the pandemic yeah. well the everything. pandemic we haven't talked about
2: the pandemic yet
0: yeah i mean that's yeah. a whole yeah another that's layer the whole thing.
2: and the thing about the pandemic that's interesting is i've watched a ton of stuff online but going on internet is also privileged because everyone doesn't have access so not only did theater struggle to make a product that was interesting which i, I have to tell you the truth i think our two senior projects were better than 50 or 60% of what I saw online from professional theaters. I thought they were much better thought out, much better written and much better shot. Lauren's piece, um, Big Spender was genius because it was about sex work that happens when people are alone in their own environment. So what's better for a Zoom box? That was really genius. And Anna being able to write her own piece and perform it in the theater and shoot it and to have the actual theatrical set design. I've seen so much stuff on Zoom that is like wallpaper behind the people or they're just reading. I think the pandemic era, was it was a, a dual thing. It was like you can reach more audiences because you certainly, if anyone had internet, you could reach people around the world. On the other hand, can you serve communities in the same way that you could live? And that's a question. Now, there were some great things like Alvin Ailey hauling out of their archives. And, you know, there were black theaters and black performing organizations who were able to put work out there that is hard to see. And I hope the people who saw it were moved and that were from a variety of places and backgrounds. But here's another challenge and the money part. You know, I was just watching Today Show today. Broadway, they had their first feature of Broadway's opening up. And what are they opening with? Hamilton, Wicked. What was the third one. It was the long-running, well, most well-known plays, the, the three that were featured. So how do you get people back in? How do you have people feel safe but more? How do these theaters survive financially, especially as they're trying to change priorities? And you may not attract the same money audience that you were being supported by in the past.
1: You mentioned Lauren Elwood. We interviewed both Lauren and Alex Howe previously about stigmas in theater. And one of the things that they both mentioned is the financial privilege it can sometimes take to be able to afford things like dance lessons, acting lessons, et cetera. And so theater can sometimes be privileged in that way not necessarily Oberlin specifically, but theater is a general concept.
2: Well, okay, we don't privilege that at Oberlin, but the thing about Oberlin that we're not really getting out there as a message is that we have a 50-year program in Black Arts out of Africana Studies, which Justin and I are appointed to both. We are in Africana Studies and theater. Can we always get the students to represent that? I'll tell you what really happens. We have a huge performing community of African-American and other people of color. They don't always attach to the theater department. And so for Justin and I and Johnny Coleman in art and uh, whoever's teaching black music, right now it's Courtney Savali Andrews or whoever's teaching African and black dance. We have huge communities of people who perform, who are students here. And so our challenge of theater is how do people perceive theater as part of this huge performing community that we have. So we have moments where we really showcase a lot of different kinds of students and work. We fall into periods where we don't, like now you know in the recent I mean we have two black theater majors and this group who are juniors and seniors have suffered not only from the pandemic but from Justin and I being off-cycle in what we've directed for one reason or another we missed our rotations in directing minus because I've been working on this big lost opera by our amazing alum Shirley Graham Dubois of the 30s for Justin it was his professional work and his sabbatical so some of the things haven't been here some of the classes haven't been here. Paul being on sabbatical, whole year, Matt being on sabbatical. So I feel, and then the pandemic. So I feel like this class got most, these couple of classes have been most disadvantaged. But we do struggle to break down the idea that theater is some kind of white or clubby enclave. And we always need all of you to help us with that. We always want to be training designers and technical people and not just actors. There was a time when I first came here where the white actors would say, if I was directing, they'd say, There aren't enough roles for us. And I was like, you're not the only people in the theater department. I just had a set designer, a dramaturg, an assistant director, a sound designer, you know. So we have to continually break through what people bring here with their idea of theater, what other people in the general community think. But when I mentioned BJ and Colin, BJ did two original plays here. BJ went directly to grad school, has a great launch to their professional career by having had Good Night, Tyler, done by the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. And I was able to bring back what we look like, BJ's first play that they wrote here and produced and directed here themselves, to be a main stage show two years ago, which was so fun because BJ has a gift for the serious funny. BJ's actually going to help teach my Word and the Beat class this summer where we're making a devised work. I've also done a lot of devised work, About every two, three years, I do a piece called The Word and the Beat in the Candor Former Little Theater, which is a roundup of every kind of talent you can imagine. Some take a class, some don't. It's a hip-hop aesthetic-inspired mashup of dramatic writing, spoken word, dance, music, turntabling, and all comers welcome. So that is the theater department as well. But we are struggling, and truthfully, our current dean feels that the college arts are underrepresented in the world and how Oberlin represents itself, and that the conservatory kind of becomes the equivalent of arts at Oberlin. So he is really encouraging all the chairs of the arts departments to do better at get the message of who we are and to increase our majors. So now I'm going to go back to the major for a minute. One of the problems in the major, you guys can tell me if I'm right, has been our requirement of two semesters of theater history. And what that theater history is and who teaches it has been something we have really paid attention to. So we had a teacher for 35, 40 years, Roger Copeland, who started out as someone very radical, teaching out radical theater traditions and became someone that students didn't want to take a class with because he then felt too attached to the Eurocentric story of theater and not welcoming to other practices and ideas. As he was leaving, we had a chance to kind of rework that class. So Jason Dorward has been with us three years and well, here's the exciting news. We have a person coming in the fall in that slot that's called Theater History and Critical Studies named Kari Barclay, who is just now graduating from Stanford but has a huge history in device theater, queer theater, queer studies. Kari will be teaching a class called Sexuality and Consent in Theater because Kari is also becoming an expert in intimacy, choreography, and directing and wants to ask a lot of big questions about how the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter movement and you know the centrality of queer people in theater, how's that operating... Car is also going to teach queer and trans performance and we're particularly excited because the dance department hired Al Evangelista last year who's also has an expertise in both hip hop and queer studies and so next year we're going to have queer performance through dance in the fall queer and trans performance practices from a theater perspective in the spring. That's huge for us. Justin and I all, still already teach a lot of courses related to black theater traditions, but we are missing more work in other theater traditions and we're missing more productions that come from an Asian American, Latinx American, indigenous American point of view. And this is something we struggle with in terms of who we are as directors, who are the students we have to be in place? Big controversy a few years ago when us did West Side Story and had no Latinx people to be in it. So, do you do it? And you don't, you know. So, my point here is that we are part of a college effort to make sure that the arts appeal to prospective students, incoming students, students who want to major. And for us, that really means looking at our curriculum. And so we want to tear up that theater history even more and more. I cannot tell you how many people have taken so many theater classes and didn't major because of those two classes.
1: That's not actually the reason why I don't want to be a major. Okay, good. The reason why I don't want to be a major is because I hate acting.
2: Oh, that's not required in our major.
1: You, you have to take a requ- an acting class? No,
2: it says performance. My class is Black art Maeve, Maeve um, Greasing just became a major as a senior because she took – my classes for performance there are other classes that count in performance that aren't the conventional acting curriculum and since i've been chair i also uh, had jason invent improvisation and acting which he took all comers you didn't have to have been a comedian or anybody else to come in there playwriting counts in performance which we're starting to offer more i've offered two classes now in playwriting and Kari's going to do a class in playwriting. Peter was in the class. And Kari's going to do one next year. One of the creative writing professors has one. So come talk to me. But maybe that's a message we're not getting out because in in the description of the major, it actually does say performance, not acting, but people translate that into acting. I also had a guest professor who's an alum invent a class about movement and writing and had a lot of students who weren't necessarily actors, but it was really about thinking through the body and writing. So I think we need to do more of that and I think we need to make it more clear, so thank you.
1: Yeah, I took Jason's Foundation of Theater class In the fall of 2020 and now i'm trying to figure out what i'm going to take as my next theater history class and i'm a little bit stuck because i don't know which theater history classes actually interest me
2: this is exactly what i mean is that we need to look at it so what if a major only needed one instead of two what if we reconceptualize what we even think people should learn in theater history or what if we even didn't even call it theater history because some people call it foundations of theater or other terms. So I think we, as a theater faculty, we have these big retreats every year where we try to think big and what can we change? This is at the top of
1: our list. Of the classes when I was like, okay, I need to take a theater history class. Foundations of Theater was the one I was not excited about. I really wanted to take musical history theater class which then didn't run
2: here's the structure of the major right now if you look at the boxes for the major foundations of theater and global theater histories which i kind of renamed and and challenged jason to branch out to where where do you find and want to talk about more contemporary theater those two are their own requirement in the major except that carol tufts has one class that can alternate for each one that has sometimes been true and sometimes not depending on who we have available to teach what. Then there's another category in the major called critical inquiry in history, which then you can take a wide variety of classes. You can take Greek and Roman drama, you can take Shakespeare in the English department, you can take my classes in African American drama, or Theater of the Millennium. So that, there are many more classes you can choose from. So that musical theater class would have gone there. Then there are the two performance classes, which as I said before, we're trying to figure out how to make that more elastic so that people don't feel like they have to be an actor. Although I will tell you, the one time I taught intro to acting, which was years ago, I had all the tech people in my class, and we had so much fun because we teach an acting 100 section every year that is meant to attract all kinds of people, not just people who want to be actors. So in the fall, we usually have the two 100 classes, mostly for incoming students who really want to be actors. So that's not necessarily a requirement and they're the ones who are likely to go on and take theater 200 the theater 300s justin has a couple of classes that are labeled 300 but he's much more flexible in who he takes this year he's doing a directing to okay directing counts in performance so that's important right now we are dwindling down in how many permanent people we have I am permanent, but I'm half theater and half Africana studies. Justin is permanent, but he's half theater, half Africana studies. And within Africana studies, he teaches his capoeira sequence, which doesn't count in theater. I teach things like African-American film and intro to Africana studies, which don't count in theater. So that means we can't take our whole four or five course load and devote to theater. Then we have Matthew who teaches mostly acting. Paul Moser has tended to teach acting either intermediate or upper level and directing, but here's the deal. We don't have enough people to offer the classes we wanna offer, so musical theater, Jason invented that class, we couldn't offer it again. There's an expert in the con in musical theater history, James O'Leary, he can't even teach his field because his demand on teaching other things are so great. So there's so many things we would like to be doing regularly that we just can't do. And our faculty is shrinking. We could very well in two years be Matt Wright, only full-time theater professor, Justin and I half and half. I could even be returned to being half of a half, which is how my permanent appointment reads. And that is when you talk about the department and attracting people, who are the professors? What are they teaching? Are people clear about what it takes to be a major? I'm really glad you said that. And I need more feedback like that about people you know who are deciding not to be a major and why, because we we really want to adjust
1: accordingly. I have friends who are like, I'm just going to minor because the minor is a lot easier to get.
2: It is. It's five courses. You have a little more control over which, you know, there's a loose set of categories one of the things that I struggle with with the minor is the way it's written out right now is you have to kind of have a specialty area and you have to take two upper level classes of the five kind of representing an area. That doesn't really suit a lot of people. There are a lot of people who've taken, I I mean, I see people who've taken 10 theater classes and don't major or minor because they feel like they don't fit in the grid. And so I feel like this is a discussion among the faculty is Is it most important to us that a minor have something of a specialty or is it more important that they have taken five classes and do we want them to be in categories or not?
0: Big thank you to Professor Caroline Jackson-Smith for joining us this episode and the last episode of the podcast and giving us so much to talk about, about how the theater department is run and how conversations around EDI are happening. One of the big things that struck me just off the heels of that most recent conversation that we were having was just how much institutional things like the hiring process, how courses are marketed to students and what courses are called, things like that are big parts of what goes into EDI, what goes into what students know about what's going on to try to have these conversations, to try to do anti-racist work within the department. It's just, as a student, you don't see much of that work that goes on behind the scenes and specifically in such a big department and in the theater department, which is working so hard to tackle all of these issues it's very interesting to have been given insight by Miss Caroline what goes on behind the scenes there.
1: Yeah definitely one of the things that I really wasn't aware of is that most of the faculty in the theater department are on fairly short contracts like Miss Caroline was obviously talking about Professor Jason Dorwitt who was the theater history professor and his contract was only for a year and they had to renew it every time and the fact that both Miss Caroline and Professor Justin Emeka are half and half, just shows you how much we have to fight as a department for every single professor that we have, which presents right. an interesting issue in itself.
0: Yeah. And then when Miss Caroline was talking about things like course evaluations and how incredibly important those are, I mean, that's the type of thing that you hear all the time, but people don't really stress it in this way. It doesn't get explained to you in such the bare bones of how it actually affects who gets hired and what courses are getting taught. So it makes me think, honestly, that at the end of the day, the power is once again in the hands of the students, as many things to are in Oberlin. I think. Well, to a degree, yes. Of course, the students aren't actively making the decisions and saying who is getting hired or not. But if you're a student, I think, then I would say it's your job, if you love a course, if you love a teacher, or more to the point, if you think that a course, Miss Caroline had even mentioned it at one point, we were having a conversation about Justin Emeka's class. He was teaching Africana Studies And she's talking about how white students had been surprised by how that class has shaped them. And they'd said, why hadn't this gotten taught to them earlier? Why hadn't it been required for them? And honestly, I think what needs to be done at that point is for those students to come forward to department heads, chairs, anyone that they can think of and say, this class affected me really deeply. This professor affected me really deeply. And this class in this way needs to be taught again and again and again. I think that if we're working towards inclusion, then that is what needs to happen is students propagating the experiences that have driven them towards a better understanding of other people and just trying to keep those going. Because if we've learned anything from this it's that just those little things it's the hiring it's the marketing it's what students are choosing to take what courses and people need to be vocal about these things I think and it'll just make it easier for the people who are already in the department trying to have these conversations
1: yeah and that also brings back the idea of sort of student agency within the process and what Ms. Caroline said about how these conversations that we're having And the course evaluations really affect the professors that are continued on within the department, the courses that are taught within the department, and it really does make an impact to the really sort of upper echelon people within the theater department. And they really do listen.
0: Yeah, I think one other big thing that I'm going to be thinking about going forward off of what she has said to us is that she kind of urged us to think about who we have on our podcast, what kind of representation we have there, and who we're talking to within the theater department, what kind of voices, and yeah, I think that's going to be something that we definitely think about going forward. And I also think summer productions are happening. Capstones are being planned for the fall. And if you're involved in any of those things, or if you're involved in any student productions that are happening on campus, think about who you're casting, who you're hiring for crew. We were talking about how there's sometimes diversity in casting, but not in crew, you know, just thinking about your own student productions. And we're going to continue to think about this entire conversation really, but also just our own personal practices and how we're Joining the conversation because I think that's what all students should really start to do is think about how they individually can be a part of joining the conversation.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Headset, the Oberlin Theater Department's podcast. Please join us next time for our next episode.